Good morning once again. This is Pastor Troy Bond with the Raven Institute of Ministry and Biblical Studies. We are back in the saddle again after a little technical difficulties yesterday. Tried to uh, sidetrack us a little bit, but we're back and ready to get into God's Word. If you are joining us for the first time today, I just want to welcome you to uh, the Raven Institute of Ministries and Biblical Studies, which is a an arm of the Raven Ministries International. We are here each uh, day, Monday through Friday, from 9 a.m. until 10 a.m. Eastern Time, teaching an expository class throughout the Word of God. Right now, we are right in the middle of uh, an expository teaching on uh, the book of Romans. The book of Romans is really the Magna Carta of the, the New Testament. I mean, we found out in the last several weeks that just the depth of the doctrine that, that God uh, has unfolded and God breathed literally uh, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul as we began to study this word. And so we're getting uh, deeper and deeper into that. If you're joining us for the first time, though, uh, we encourage you, you can actually go back into our archives and get these uh, other messages. You can go to uh, www.biggrace.com. And on biggrace.com, what you will find is uh, a link that says uh, Study Tools, I believe it is. And you can click on that and it will take you to our pages where the previous uh, messages were. And so I think there's 41 hours of teaching on the subject of the book of Romans. So we encourage you to get those things and to join us uh, live here every single morning from 9 until 10 o'clock as well. So appreciate you joining us today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and dive right into the Word of God. Father, we just thank you today for your grace and for your mercy, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for your wisdom and the understanding, Lord God, in regards to the Word of God. And we just ask you today that you would just be present with us, that, Lord God, that your Spirit would just lead and guide us into all truth. We thank you that we have an advocate with the Father. We have an intercessor in Christ Jesus who has, uh, who has, has, has become that propitiation for our sins, that hung upon a cross, who died and who rose again on the third day. And Lord God, we thank you today that through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord God, we're sanctified and we're justified before the Father. And today, Lord God, we come empty-handed, Lord God, apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we just ask you to give us the truth, give us the, the way, give us the life, and just reveal yourself to us, Lord God, in a more intimate, Lord God, and, 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 and special way. I pray for each one that's joined us today, Lord God, literally all over the, the this nation and literally all over the world as we come together on a daily basis to lift up the name of Jesus and to seek you. I just pray, Lord God, that you would just give us wisdom, give us understanding, Lord God, just open our eyes to, to be receptive of the Word and just cause that Word to find good soil that would produce some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Okay, if we're, you're here this morning, you know that we are starting on the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. We, we've spent literally 41 classes, I believe it was, looking at the first three. And so today we're going to dive right into the fourth chapter. And, and I believe that it's, it's what you're going to find is this is really going to be a, uh, something good for you. And I believe there's a lot of personal application in this, just like you've seen in, in, in the previous three. But it's a chapter that is so... Uh, Pivotal in that it clearly establishes that salvation, or we'll use that term justification, back and back and forth with the subject of salvation, that is by God's uh, grace through faith alone, and not by any other means. And so, as you write notes on this, know that that uh, justification or salvation, we're going to see in this fourth chapter that really, folks, it is strictly by grace through faith alone. There's nothing that we can do to merit it. There's no uh, organization that we can join or any church attendance or anything else that is going to merit the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. It's through grace, uh, through faith alone in Christ. And in this fourth chapter, it's really interesting. I love looking at church history 
and, and just the things that have happened in the last uh, 2,000 years uh, since the, 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 the church was birthed there on the day of Pentecost. And it was, this, it was this fourth chapter of the book of Romans, and some of you folks may be familiar with this, but that, that served as literally the revelation to a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther who would end up openly, literally uh, challenging and defying the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. I think it's interesting about that because of just a, uh, something that made the news just recently with the, the, the latest Pope, Pope Benedict, had, had basically reaffirmed what, what had already been stated in, in numerous occasions, that he said basically that the Roman Catholic Church was the only way to salvation, that it was the only means, it was the only true church. None of these other churches or none of these other faiths or religions within the confines of Christianity could bring about salvation into a person's life. And so I think it's interesting that we're studying this, this fourth chapter because it was this fourth chapter that that former Roman Catholic monk discovered that, uh, that, that there was justification by faith, not through the, the precepts or the, the religion of the Roman Catholic Church and salvation would come. And uh, in regards to, to Martin Luther, from the years 1510 to 1520, this man was assigned to lecture on the book of Psalms, the, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, and finally on the book of, of Romans during that 10-year period. But what was interesting is during that study, uh, that that it was during that study of the Book of Romans, and this fourth chapter really jumped out at him, that uh, that his beliefs on such really Catholic mainstays, and some of you folks may have come out of uh, Catholicism, but uh, papal authority that believes that the, the whatever the Pope says is on equal footing with uh, with uh, the canon of Scripture, indulgences, which was uh, widely practiced, that says, you know what, if there's sins that were passed, that if you'll if you'll buy an indulgence, if you'll you'll pay money, that your sins will be forgiven, even of people that have died. Penance, where you'd go and you would go to the Catholic uh, priest, and he would tell you to do uh, five Hail Marys and a couple of Our Fathers, and everything would be fine, and all these other things. But when when Martin Luther began to read the Book of Romans, and he got to this fourth chapter that all those teachings that he had been trained up, raised up, schooled in, in the monasteries, r- literally ran aground on the, the Word of God that he was reading. And he would later rega- uh, write something in regards to this discovery on the subject of justification through faith. Now I want you to uh, hear what Martin Luther said. It's powerful. He said, This one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding of all godliness, The first and chief article is this. Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins and was raised again for our justifications according to Romans 3, 24 and 25. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 John 1, 29. And God has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. And all have sinned and are all justified freely without their own works and merits by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and His blood. This is, the ne- this is necessary to believe. This cannot be otherwise acquired or grasped by any other work, law, or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. Nothing of this article can be yielded or surrendered, even though heaven and earth and everything else falls. And so on October 31st, 1571, give you a little bit of history, he would write what would be called, become known as the 95 Theses. And some of you have heard about this. And it was this 95 Theses, or this, this 95 points or references, in which he challenged many of the key doctrinal beliefs of the Catholic Church. 
And so he sent this letter to his personal archbishop there, and he also nailed a copy of it to the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany that same day. And literally what it became is a catalyst for what we call the Protestant Reformation, or the breaking off of, uh, from the Catholic Church. And it ultimately led to Luther's expulsion from the Catholic Church, as we all know. And what you'll find interesting is in the, the, the Catholic Encyclopedia, and you can go online and find these type of things, it often refers to Luther as the leader of a religious revolt. And he's also called, many times in the Catholic Encyclopedia, he's called a heretic. And so what's interesting is he revolted or he raised up a rebellion against that, that false doctrine. And folks, you know what? We're in a time and day and age where um, we, we, we may consider ourselves Christians here today. We may consider ourselves believers here today. But I tell you what, there's much that calls itself by the same name that we need to rise up and begin to revolt against. We need to get back into the Word of God and we need to begin to do what He did. Find that discovery and, 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 and watch just how those traditions of men, those things that have slipped in, in those, what, 400 and what is it, 36 years after Martin uh, Luther, that they many of those things have slipped in just under a different type of guise uh, in, into, into the churches. And we we need to rise up and we need to revolt and we need to rise up, literally cause a revolution to come into the churches of that that declare Jesus is Lord and we need to bring on a revolt and a revolution of these false teachings and these things that have slipped in that have tried to, 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 to pose themselves as Christianity. There's a DVD about the life of Martin Luther that I really recommend to you. It's called Luther. And I think you can find it at Blockbuster. And it's a very, they do a very good job of telling the story. It's very professionally done. It's, it's, you'll find it enlightening and entertaining. It's, a, it's a very well put together. So if you ever get the chance, go to, uh, to Blockbuster and ask them for the, the DVD on Luther. Some of you folks may have seen that. So, folks, just as Luther uh, dealt with the issue of justification through faith in Jesus Christ, what did we say, 436 years ago, and... and we're dealing with the exact same thing today. But instead of nailing our 95 theses to the, to the, the, the Castle Church in Wittenberg, what we're doing today is we're broadcasting literally all over the world for the nations to hear. And what you'll do in your life is you'll take that truth of justification by faith and really what it is, and, 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 and you'll preach it from the housetops into your communities, into your families, into your relatives, or whoever it is that God has, has, has put in your path. And so... What I, want, what I think is interesting to consider is that Luther's opposition from the establishment, which was the, the Catholic Church or from religion, really, folks, is not too much unlike the opposition that the Apostle Paul faced from his Jewish counterparts. And so we can fall back 1,500 years, uh, 1,571 years of thereabouts, uh, uh, to from when Luther began to talk on justification to when Paul is talking on justification right here in Romans chapter 4. And so he, he confronted those things, same things. And so where, where the Catholics of the 16th century were bound by the traditions of papal law or Roman Catholic law, those of the 1st century were bound by the shadows of that Mosaic law. And so what Paul did was establish this doctrinal foundation as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And literally that would pave the way for men such as, as Martin Luther and different ones and, and ourselves here today as students of the Word of God to preach the, the, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith and that alone, not of works lest any man should boast. And so folks, as I, I stated yesterday, as I kind of gave some of you guys kind of a heads up, the book of Romans is... is, is Divided literally into to four areas, that, and, and and to establish something, it's so it's we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at one area, but I want to also say that the Book of Romans is devoted to establishing the doctrine of justification by faith. So put that down. 
Romans 4 is devoted to establishing the doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. And, and, and folks, the difference between genuine biblical Christianity and all other faiths, whether those faiths claim some type of biblical base, whether it's Mormonism that claims a, a Bible base. Now they, they have the Book of Mormon, they claim it's another testament of Jesus. Whether it's Jehovah Witnesses, where they have the New World, or the New, what is it, New World Translation, New NWT, which is largely uh, plagiarized from the King James and they take out some very key elements of it. Or if they're uh, a, a religion of Eastern origin, like Hinduism, Buddhism, or even Islam. All of these other religions are these types of faith, or pseudo faith. All of them will ask you to change what you do in the hope that it might change who you are. Now I want to say that again. All other faiths apart from genuine biblical Christianity will always ask you to change what you do in the hopes that it might change who you are whereas Christianity promises to change who you are and guarantees that it will change what you do. I think that's worth repeating again. All other faiths Will, will ask you or ch to, to change what you do in the hopes that it will change who you are, whereas Christianity promises to change who you are first and guarantees that it will change what you do. And so, folks, really, that's so important. We, we do the things that we do not to gain the favor of God or not to be justified or not to get saved. We do the things that we do as a result or as the fruit of our salvation. Now, folks, listen, I preach the gospel all over the country and mainly in, in streets and in neighborhoods and in ghettos and in, in housing projects or Bourbon Street or New York City or Skid Row in Los Angeles or wherever it may be. But, folks, I don't do those things in order to gain the favor of God or to, to put another feather in my cap or a notch on my belt. I do those type of things because 22 years ago, He changed who I was. Who I was was someone that was indifferent towards anyone else. Who I was was someone that, that, that was focused upon myself and focused upon the, the things of the flesh. But who I am now is a person that's sold out to Christ Jesus. And so we've got to grab hold of those things and, and, and grab hold of who Christ Jesus is in us based upon uh, doctrines of justification through faith. And so, just like I said, I want to say it again. Romans is devoted to establishing the doctrine of justification by faith. And so what happens, though, in, in, in the, the philosophies of false religions, they found themselves slipping to what we call in, Christ, uh, what we call in Christianity and more so a thinking that, that somehow what they do translates into changing who they are. You take the Jehovah Witnesses. They'll knock on a certain amount of doors and they, they hope that maybe they'll fall into some realm and they'll, they'll, in, they'll inherit the earth or they'll gain the favor of, of their religion. And so, but that, not only just in the cults, but we see that in, in people in, in what we call mainstream Christianity. They think that somehow if they do enough Christian things that they'll become Christians. Now, folks, you know, we're, we're looking at, I was looking at the news and all these National Football League NFL training camps are about to open. And so, you know, all these, these, these superstar athletes, these guys that have spent their lives and trained themselves to, to do these powerful things, what they've done is they're, they're fixing to show up and they're going to make millions of dollars playing football. Now, folks, I guarantee you, you can go out and buy you a football jersey, buy you a helmet, get you a pair of cleats. You can go run around in your backyard, but it will not make you an NFL player. You can do all those things. You can rub black stuff underneath your eyes or, or do whatever else, and you will never be an NFL player. And so the, the same thing holds true for Christianity. You can do those things, 
and or you can go to church, but it's not going to make you a Christian. I say all the time, you can move into a chicken coop, but it's not going to make you a chicken. And so, but what we've said is, if I go to church or if I show up on Sunday or Sunday night or Wednesday and all these things, it'll it'll certainly translate into making me a Christian. Or if I do good deeds, if I take care of my family, or if I I don't drink, or if I'm respected in my community, by doing those things will somehow justify me before God. Folks, listen, all those things are self righteousness, and they're always going to be filthy rags, regardless of how noble they are, regardless of how nice they are, how sweet they are. Uh, we can go feed the hungry, but I tell you what, if we're doing if we're feeding the hungry in order to gain favor with God, we have missed it. That's self-righteousness. We can take in the homeless. We can, we can go and work disaster relief or whatever it is. None of those things will justify us before a living God. It is only by grace through faith that we're justified. And so what, what's happened is they, they, all those things that we do or the modern church has done, they fail to transform, uh, to, to be transformed by those things. And so they'll, they'll also fail to reproduce the fruit of the born-again life, which is only a, a, a hunger and a desire after souls. And so what you've seen slip into the modern church is because they've got such a works mentality that if I show up, if I act good, if I do nice things, that, that I'll be a Christian. But folks, listen, the, the fruit of the Christian faith is spoken of in Matthew chapter 7, and we've talked about this time and time again. It's the carpos fruit. It's that reproductive fruit that, is, that, that bears forth more people into His kingdom because of the testimony and because of us sharing the word with people. That is how you know a tree is by its fruit. Not by its works. It's by its fruit. Now, what we do is preach the gospel, and that's what changes hearts and lives. You know, folks, I was thinking of the traps that have been set for, for literally several generations that have literally ensnared and crippled the body of Christ. And what's happened is these snares have, have, have basically have just castrated the church and have left it unable to produce spiritual offspring. Uh, offspring. One of these uh, snares that we've talked about frequently in this class is, is what's called seeker sensitivity that eliminates really the fear of God. And so by eliminating the fear of God or the moral dread of being displeasing under God, what it, it, it's passed itself off as this uh, as, as a way to a better life, uh, rather than a, than the only means to be saved from the wrath to come. And so, what's happened is it's, it's created this do gooder type mentality. If I can do do good, or if I can and, and, and not be as bad as my neighbor, if I can do nice things, then you know I can talk good and and, and, and act good. That somehow this is going to produce uh, uh, righteousness in my life. But the reason that's been perpetuated is because pastors have stood behind pulpits and they promised, listen, if you just come up to this altar, man, you're going to have such a great life. God's got a wonderful plan for you. God's going to fulfill your destiny. Well, what if those things don't happen? What if your life is cut short? What if you, you, you never have the things that you desire? What if those things, that the, the material issues that you crave after are never fulfilled? Are you going to shake your fist and say, well, God, I thought that, you know, what if I served you that this preacher told me I'd have everything I wanted? I wanted a, I wanted a five-story house and I wanted a, a three-car in the driveway and I wanted you know a million dollars in the bank what if those well saints Jesus never came and promised you those type of things Jesus said don't lay up the treasures here on earth where they, they're corrupted he said but lay up those treasures in, in heaven where they're not corrupted because where your treasure is your heart will be also and so we, we see those things it's pretty crystal clear that those things are, 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 are a type of works mentality but I was noticing something the other day that's very subtle. And, and because I think that it's subtle because it really employs a lot of the, the language of the Word of God and really kind of incorporates many of the same aspects of righteousness and of holiness and repentance that we like to hear. And, you know, I, I was um, 
sitting here the other day and I was listening to the television and a t- television preacher came on and I, I don't really listen to those guys very often but I heard the guy's name and somebody that I heard a few things from or about and he'd said some pretty good stuff but what was interesting about this guy he began to, to talk and there was a ton of pe- people that was there and what he said was, was really good and so I thought maybe someone is, is really saying what needs to be said about the gospel but at the end of it I was really kind of disappointed because he talked about repentance he talked about righteousness he talked about holiness but at the end of the whole message it was only about their personal holiness or their own righteousness and it was not preached or spoken of as a way to equip them or to prepare them to go out and lead other people to Jesus. And folks, see, that's a trap. Because we can talk about repentance all day long. I can talk about righteousness. I can talk about holiness. But unless that that righteousness, that repentance, that holiness does something inside of me that's going to cause me to go out and bear the fruit of salvation... Listen, it's, it's just something else that just sounds good. It's just something else that, that, that is just missing the real point. Folks, we've got to ask ourselves, listen, what are we doing this? To what end? i got saved. To, to what end? I want to serve God. To what end? I go to church. To what end? I want to read the Word. To what end? I pray. To what end? I worship. To what end? What is the end of it? What should it be reproducing in my life? What is it that it should be bringing upon my life to, 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 to cause me to be more like Him, to, to live more like Him, to look more like Him? It, anything that I hear, whether it's doing good things for people or whether it's walking in holiness... Those things ought to compel me to go out and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God to a lost and dying world. Everything that I do in relationship to His kingdom should be to the end that I'm going and telling other people about Jesus. And so, folks, if you're listening to these teachings on the book of Romans and you're not using what you're hearing uh, to make you more effective in reaching your friends, your family, your neighbors, or your cities for Jesus, then folks, listen, you are missing the point and you are wasting your time. We're not here to fill your head with some knowledge and so you can sit around and say, boy, you know what? I sure feel a lot more righteous because of what I learned today. Folks, listen, if, if, if you can walk away from, from the, the, the table of the Lord, if you can walk away from having fellowship with Him through His Word and through His Holy Spirit and not feel obligated to tell somebody else about Jesus and, to, and to really to snatch people from the, the fires of hell, you have missed the point and it is to no end. You have got to say to yourself, listen, the reason that I'm studying is to, to, so I can have an answer for any man that would ask for a hope of salvation. The reason that I pray is that I would be ready and I would be on point when it, when it comes to having a sensitivity towards where someone's at in the relationship with God or, or apart from God. And I can speak a word with boldness. The reason that I worship Him is that I, He can be exalted in my life. That I can, I can, I can demonstrate His goodness. That I can lift up the standard of righteousness and holiness to someone else so I can go tell them, folks, listen, the end is, is why we do the means. Here's the means. Studying the Word of God. But the end is that I'm going to the highways, to the hedges. I'm going to the street corners. I'm going to the prison yards. I'm going to the jailhouses. I'm going to the nursing homes. I'm going to my families. I'm going to the workplace to tell people about Jesus. And so, folks, the reason that I spend hours, literally, every single week and every single day to study, to pray, and to prepare this material is to equip you for the work of the ministry of reconciliation. If you're wondering why I'm here, if you're wondering why I get up and my alarm sounds at 5.30 in the morning and I'm here day after day, it's so you can grab a hold of the Word and you'll go out and compel them to come to the house of Jesus 
that his house may be full. And I'm not talking about a church on a street corner, which all those are great and fine. People need to get in fellowship. I'm talking about that people can get to heaven by repentance, justification, by grace, and through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. So, folks, Romans chapter 4 is really divided into four sections. And I told you this, kind of gave you a primer yesterday and ask you to, to kind of look over those, those 25 verses of Romans chapter 4 and see if you can kind of divide them up in what Paul the Apostle was trying to speak. And so I'm going to give those to you. You can kind of compare your notes to what I tell you. Verses 1 through 8 of, of Romans chapter 4 are literally devoted to showing that, that justification or salvation is a gift that is freely given and not earned. So if you were looking at that, what 1, 1 through 8, they're going to show us Specifically, that justification or salvation is a gift that is just freely given and there's no way that you can earn it. We're going to see in verses 9 through 12, 9 through 12, are going to show that circumcision was not necessary for salvation since Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So 9 through 12 are broken down. We're going to see that circumcision was not necessary for salvation since Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Then verses 13 through 17, verses 13 through 17, are going to show that justification cannot come through the law since Abraham was justified hundreds of years before Mosaic law was even given. And so Paul is going to teach that 13 through 17 that justification cannot even come through the law because Abraham was justified hundreds of years before Mosaic law was even given. Then finally, verses 18 through 25 are going to summarize that justification comes from faith apart from all else. It's going to just summarize what we've learned in the previous 17 verses, that, just, that, uh, that justification or salvation comes from faith apart from all else. So I'm going to read uh, Romans 4, 1 through 8 this morning. And here it says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? What are we going to say that he's found? Then he says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he has, uh, he has therefore a reason to glory, but not before God. For what says the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that works not but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man of whom God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So I'm going to drop back to verse 1. And I'm going to read that again. It says that, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the faith, has found? Folks, well, you know that in our previous class, we dealt with the final four, four verses of chapter 3. And I'm going to read them to you in regard to this question that we have posed to us in verse 1 of chapter 4 by the Apostle Paul. Here's what he previously stated in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 28 through 31. He says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And so, folks, he is dealing with Paul the Apostle writing this church uh, from Corinth to the Roman church, dealing with a lot of converted Jews as well. He's dealing with an audience comprised of Jewish Christians who were literally struggling with this whole aspect of justification apart from the law. And what he was doing was making the point that God was just one God. And that he, that, 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 that is, uh, and being so, that He was a God for all people, with or without the law. And that the true basis of salvation in regards to the law 
was the same basis for salvation apart from the law. And I want to say that again. He was saying that the true basis of salvation in regards to the law was the same basis of salvation apart from the law. And that basis was, was faith. And so when I say that the true basis of salvation uh, according to the law, regards to the law, it was faith. And so in order to even have salvation or be justified in, in regards to the law under the, under the Old Covenant, it had to be faith. And that's where it started out with Abraham. It's the same thing that had to be established apart from the law, and it's the same thing as faith. And so folks, the law was given for a purpose, and that purpose was to literally create a spiritual environment where faith would have to materialize. And I say it had to materialize because living under the law, regardless of, of your societal or social position or, or what you knew or what you had experienced or how you were raised or, or if you were part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, you knew in your heart under the law that there was absolutely no way that you could walk totally blameless under the law. You knew if you, were, if you were under the law that there were too many variables, there were too many requirements, there were too many things that, that you couldn't even keep up with. So in your heart, regardless of the, the piety that you demonstrated on the outside, you knew in your heart that there was no way that you could walk according to the law, blameless. And so their only hope was that they could walk close enough to it that their transgressions would not be evident and that the sacrifice under the law would cover them in the process. And so their only genuine hope was is that I won't deviate too much out that it would be evident to anyone else. And that that sacrifice that we bring to the, to the brazen altar, which we discussed in, in, in detail in Romans 3.25, that hopefully that sacrifice would, would be enough to cover up those issues or the, my failure under the law. And so what's interesting, Paul now takes them to the place that they would have probably rather he hadn't, hadn't have taken them. He took them to the place... Uh, where their, uh, their confidence in anything apart from being justified by, by grace through faith would, would have to unravel. And so he took them to Abraham. You know, he didn't take them to Moses. He didn't take them to David. He didn't take them anywhere. He took them to, to, to Abraham, who you should know is the father of the Jewish people. And listen, listen to what he said. He said, what shall we say then that Abraham, who is our forefather, discovered then in regards to this matter? Look at, he said, what shall we say on this issue of the law that Abraham, who is our forefather, said in regards to this matter? So, what, what, why was it important? I want to ask you this question. Why was it important for Paul to interject the name and the inheritance of Abraham into this conversation, apart from the obvious fact that he was the forefather of the people? And so, Paul is injecting, he's in this discussion on the law, and he finds it necessary to inject the name of Abraham. Now, you can look in that and you can, you can deduct from that verse that it's because, well, he's the forefather. It says it was. But I want you to look at something else. Uh, and, and Consider this. He had to inject Abraham into this discussion with these Jews that were always wanting these works to be involved or would slip back and think that somehow they were justified by, by going to the temple or going to church in the case of the modern church or, or being religious or joining a, a, a denomination or whatever it would be. The reason that it was so important for him to interject the subject of Abraham, the forefather, was that the fact that Abraham himself was a Gentile. Now that's so important. Abraham himself was a Gentile. Now folks, look at Genesis, the book of Genesis. We're going all the way back to the source. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get you out of your country... And from your kindred, 
Think about that word. And from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you shall be a great blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. And in you shall all families, somebody say all families of the earth be blessed. But here's what he said. He said, get out of your country and from your kindred. Folks, kindred literally in that Hebrew language is those of the same family lineage. Those possessing the same inherent characteristics. He had the same physical and he had the same spiritual DNA that these Gentile people had. And so Paul interjects that, listen, the guy that became that was your father, that you are the offspring of, started out as a Gentile. Now look at this, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. This even goes a little bit deeper into that. And it has to kind of fly in the face of this elitism that the, the Jewish people were experiencing at the time and literally the same type of thing that the church has experienced. In uh, Deuteronomy 26.5, Deuteronomy 26.5, and it says, And you shall speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a great nation, mighty and populous. What did he say? A Syrian ready to perish was my father. Folks, you probably don't know this, but the ancestral line that we call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was that of Syrian. They were of that year of the Chaldees. That was the, the area of Syria. And so there was no such thing as a Jew or a Hebrew prior to Abraham. There was no law. There were no tribes. There was no ritual. There was no priesthood. There was just Abraham. And there was just his faith that served to justify him before God. And so before there was all these other things that people tried to say that you need for salvation, before there was any of those things, folks, there was faith. Before there was a, an organized church, there was faith. Before there were, were, were a plethora of denominations, there were faith. Before there was all this, 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 this hierarchy and all these positions and all these offices that, that people boast of so much, folks, there was faith. There was a justification by one source and that was faith. And so the forerunner for all these things that, that we have tried to adopt and incorporate into it, there was just faith. No tribe, uh, no law, no ritual, no program, uh, no denominational affiliation, no, no t-shirts, no anything. There was just faith and faith alone. And he came, folks, think about it, from a family not unlike ours. He was bound, he was bruised, he was broken. He says he came from a, from, from a family that was ready to perish. He came from a family of idolaters who he came from. Now, now listen to this. I'm going to prove that to you again. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And it says, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, now listen to this, who, you're, who you've sprung from, who you're the offspring of, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. And so, folks, here Paul the Apostle is talking about justification through faith and faith alone. And he interjects Abraham because he begins to, to, to enlighten the people about the heritage of Abraham. Abraham wasn't justified by these things that they're now saying people need to be justified by. 
He is saying that Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone. He's saying, furthermore, Abraham came from a family of idolaters. He didn't come from a family of, of people that had some rich godly heritage. He came from a family of, of, of idolatry. And, and Paul is cutting literally the very legs out from under them by utilizing this line of questioning on them. He's, he's sawing them off. He's saying, listen, you, you boast of your father Abraham, but what I'm telling you is if you'll look at the life of Abraham, Abraham was just like those Gentiles because he was a Gentile. And so, what then can we say that the founder, the father, the first of our people who had none of these customs, I'm paraphrasing it now, I'm kind of giving you my, my version of it in regards to what we've read. He says, what can we say that the father, that the founder, the first of our people, Abraham, who had none of these customs that you see is so imperative for salvation, and who, by the way, came from the wrong side of the tracks himself, discovered in regards to, to, to whether it was the law or faith that justified a man before God. What do you think that Abraham discovered? And in verse 2 it says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he, is, he has a reason to glory, but not before God. And so if Abraham was justified by his own deeds or his own works, then you know what? He could have room to glory or to boast, but, but he would never have room, regardless of what he's done, to boast before a true and living God. Paul actually, folks, addresses this issue with the church at Corinth, which so happens to be where he wrote this letter to the, to the Romans from. And I want you to turn and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 30. Paul the Apostle says, I repeat. What did he say? He said, I repeat. He said, let no man take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. Here's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, I'm not a fool. He said, I'm listening to your foolishness. I'm seeing those things. But he, what he was saying in verse 16, he said, listen, but I'm going to talk like you do just for a second. I'm going, to, I'm going to put things in perspective by acting like you act. He said, this is self-confident boasting. He said, that I'm doing, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but I'm talking as a fool. Verses 16 and 17. He's telling them, listen, I'm going to speak like you would speak. And he said, I'm not speaking thus saith the Lord. But I'm going to show you just how foolish your talk is. Then he says in verse 18, he says, Since many are boasting the way the world does, he said, I'm going to do the same thing. He said, You will gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. He says, In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. In other words, he says, you'll listen to anybody that will hold you in bondage. Anybody that will boast in their own ways, their own will, their, their own thinking. He said, you'll boast to them. He said, so, he says, so I'm going to do the same thing. And so verse 21, he said, to my shame, he said, I admit that we are too weak for that. He said, what anyone else dares to boast about, he said, and listen, I'm speaking as a fool. He said, I, I'll also speak the same way. Or I, I dare to boast about those things. In verse 22, then he begins to boast about his self. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am. And, he, and then he, he says again, I love it. He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Then he says, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm more of a servant of Christ. He said, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. He said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He said, I spent a night and a day in the open seas. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from, from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the cities, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. 
He said, I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and, and, and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concerns for all the churches. Who is weak? And do I not feel weak? Who is led into sin? And do I not inwardly burn? If I must boast, though, he said, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Folks, listen, all those things that he was doing, he was putting those things on display. He said, yeah, I could talk like that. He said, but at the end of the day, he was basically dressing down his audience. He was saying, boast all you want in what you have done or what you have accomplished. And he said, I'll show you that, that, uh, that your resume or your credentials or your signed certificate of completion that you framed and hung on a wall does not compare at all to the things that I've even accomplished. He said, you're foolish to think that your deeds or your accomplishments in any way can impress God. Folks, listen, nothing that we do impresses God. Nothing that we do justifies us before God or gets God to say, man, they really are neat. They really are great. They really are worth my trouble. Folks, nothing that we can do, nothing that we boast about can impress God. The things that we do, amen, testify of who God is. They testify of His grace. They testify of His mercy. When you do the things that God has told you to do, they testify of who He is. If Abraham were justified by works, yes, sure, then he would have room to boast or to glory, but not before God. Folks, there's something interesting to note about the word usage uh, for works here in Romans uh, 4.2. Listen to this. Instead of using the word dia, which means by uh, which means by a means or of through something, I'm going to say that that's the word English spelling would be dia. And so instead of him talking about these boasting of works, that word dia, which means by means of or through works, he instead uses the word ek, ek, which means out of. And so dia versus ek. He uses a word, and I'm going to give you what the reason that's important is because what Paul was speaking of, the ek, which refers to works being regarded as this meritorious source of salvation that, that says, we did this to deserve that. And so the, the, uh, the, the word ek is, is, is that, that meritorious word, if, if, I, if I can use another lack of a better term. He's saying, listen, uh, you can't say that you have this, this, this ek type of works that says that you're doing something that's, that's, that's going to give you some type of uh, uh, credit or credence in the kingdom. That you're going to do something that, that's, that's through this means or through this mechanism or through what you do that's going to justify you before God. And so, literally, it would fly in the face of being saved by grace through faith and not of meritorious deeds. And so he's saying, listen, I can't do these things on my own. And, and so he's saying, listen, I'm not using that word. I'm saying that you think that, that by what you do or through those things or, or through that source. Folks, did we not determine in our teaching that, that, listen, everything that happens in the kingdom has got to be through faith. Anything that we say, anything that we do, anything that we believe has got to be solely through faith. And so it, it's really in contrast that ek is in contrast to the utilization of works or the dia utilization of works, because these works are the natural outflow of the life of the believer. And so, there's something that will come out of my life as a believer that is, is the product of righteousness, which is the, the dia, not something, the ek, that comes into my life that produces righteousness. Folks, listen. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus unto the good works, uh, 
which have been foreordained by God that we should walk in those things. And so we're created for that dia, for good works. Creation comes, and so something inside of our life will produce those type of good works. Not the, the ek that comes that's going to bring something out of. And so James 2.17-20 says this, Even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. He said, yeah, a man may say that you have faith and I have works. He said, but show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. The devil also believes, he says, and tremble. And he says, but what you got to know, old man, that faith without works is dead. And so if I say I have faith, but it doesn't produce the type of works that's going to flow out of those that faith, what, what it is, it's, it's dead. There's no reality to it. And so that, that works that he's talking about, though, is the fruit of salvation. It's the testimony of Jesus. It's the preaching of the gospel to the lost. And so if I say I have faith, but I'm not producing, what it's saying is the faith that I have is DOA. It is dead on arrival. It is not producing anything that's going to produce life. It's not producing anything that's going to bring about a, a testimony of Christ Jesus. So, folks, when people attempt to make works the source of their salvation, the flesh is glorified. But it, faith in God is, is our genuine source. And if, if, if faith in God is our genuine source, I should say, then the works that we do will glorify God and not the flesh. I want to say that again. When we attempt to make works the source of our salvation, the flesh is glorified. But when faith is our source, then the works that we do glorify God and not our flesh. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that no flesh shall glory in His presence. And so anything that we do or we materialize or comes out of our life has got to be the product of faith. And the product of faith and the, 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 the end result of faith is always going to be salvation to those that are lost. And so folks, the problem with the Jews was that, Paul, that, that Paul was addressing is that they had become very self-righteous and they had become boastful concerning what they had done or who they were. It was as though they had adopted some type of entitlement type of mentality that said they were deserving of God's favor based upon their own heritage or their own actions. And they forgot where Abraham came from. They forgot who he was. They forgot that he was a Gentile. So Paul injected that into the, the scene to say, listen, it wasn't based upon his merit. It wasn't based upon his family. It wasn't based upon his heritage. It was based upon he had faith, not in his own works, in his own, his own self, his own abilities, but he had faith in God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And what's happened, folks, is the modern church is no different in, in many, many cases. What it does, it boasts of itself or of others. And so the modern church boasts of whose conference that they went to or, uh, or wh what church they attend or who spoke at their church or whose mantle or whose anointing that, that, that was passed on or imparted unto him. And you've heard these type of things. People say, well, listen, I, I, went, to, I went to such and such as, uh, uh, conference and, and they laid hands on me. And we boast of all these things in the flesh. Or, you know what, I, I read such and such as book or, or I, I go to such and such as church or you know, I'm a part of this denomination or, or somebody prayed for me and they said that I had the mantle of Catherine Kuhlman or I have the mantle of Smith Wigglesworth or something else. And so they boast in all these things of the natural. Folks, listen, if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the Lord that no flesh should glory in His presence. What happens so many times is many pastors will ask other preachers, they'll say, so how many are you running? Or how many is your church running? 
And, and, and denominations, so you'll go to a denominational meeting if even any of you folks have ever been to one, and they'll award certificates and they'll say, well, these people had the most people in their Sunday school attendance and, or these people raised the biggest offering this year or these people built the newest and the nicest building that year. And folks, that stuff's rubbish. I want you to know that, that anything that, 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 that we do that is man-made, that, 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 is, it, that, that comes from the works of our own abilities, our own hands, it's not going to do anything. I want you to know that, that none of those things that we do can make heaven stand up and take notice. Not what man does or those things that, that causes man to lean over or man to call or man to inquire or to man to desire us. None of those things that we think, whether it's building buildings or, 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 or running a certain amount of people in our, in, our, in our fellowships or belonging to a certain organization, none of those things will cause heaven to take notice. They cause men to take notice. What causes heaven to take notice is Luke 15, chapter 10. And it says, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Don't think that if we have a, a superstructure or some massive cathedral that heaven's going to say, Man, I tell you what, that old boy there has got it going on. I can't wait till he gets up here. We need a guy like that sitting on our board and, in heaven. We need, a, we need somebody like that up here to give us advice because evidently he's got it going on. Folks, listen. Let no flesh glory in his presence. All of those things are man-made things. The only thing that is not man-made is salvation. Buildings can be derived from God. Membership can be accomplished through, the, through, through, through membership drives and through, through uh, uh, salesmanship. All of those things, uh, uh, conferences, they can be organized by men. But salvation and salvation alone comes out of the heart of God. It comes out of faith and justification through Jesus Christ. It comes from God drawing us by His grace and us bring, coming to repentance and coming to Him. The only thing that causes heaven to take notice is when one sinner is willing to repent. But it's interesting that it's the buildings, it's the programs, it's the accolades or the escalades and the, the Christian superstars which will get people hooping and hollering, but they are indifferent would you share with them about one sinner who is repent? Folks, listen. I, I've seen uh, God do some incredible things over the years. I've seen Him do some amazing things. Because all those other things that we put uh, authority in or those things that we, we, we put stock in that, that cause people to, to rise up, that cause uh, folks to, 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 to look for the, the benefit or, or people to come to our groups or the things that, that are man-made. But what's interesting about all that is that when you do, you tell somebody somebody got saved, they're like, oh, that was nice, or that was great, or you tell them that, uh, that, that you're, 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 you went out to the jailhouse and somebody got saved. Now, are they rejoicing? They shout with you? They say, well, that's really nice. Or they say, man, I need to go there next time. Or you go to a street corner and you say, man, I was talking to this homeless guy and he gave his life to Jesus. And he wants to get restored and he wants his, his life to get turned around. Is that what causes them to rejoice? Because, folks, I've got news for you. That's what makes heaven rejoice. It's not the superstar type of Christianity. Here's what's interesting, too. When I was pastoring in Texas, I made a flyer one time for our church. And on this flyer, I put, I think I put the pic, I put like 12 different Christian superstars. There was a picture of T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer and, and Jesse Duplantis. There was Rod Parsley. All these, uh, John Hagee, all these these mainstays that you see on television all the time. And it, it was a big, it was like a big poster, full color. Had all their pictures and their names above it. But in small print underneath it, it says, all these people, it says, will not be in church with us this Sunday. And in small print it says, but the real superstar 
in, in big letters it said Jesus will be. And it was amazing that I had our church address and everything else. And so what people did is immediately they saw Rod Parsley. They saw, they saw Joyce Myers. They saw all these other things. And, and, and so they thought that, that was the source. They thought that that was the reason for the post. And I was getting all these telephone calls. And, and they would say, hey, I saw that flyer that said all these people are going to be at your church. What time is that going to start? I said, well, I guess you didn't look at the fine print. It says that they're not going to be there. But the real superstar is going to be there this Sunday. And then his name is Jesus. Now, folks, do you think those people showed up to fall in the presence of God? Absolutely not. Do you think they flocked to the building because they, they heard Jesus was going to be there? No, but they would have lined up around the corner with a, looking for a place to get in if they'd have thought they could touch a superstar of the gospel. Folks, something has, has, has happened in the church, and we, we, we got away from, 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 from faith in God and the devotion to Him, and we devoted ourselves to, to the works of men, to the, to the legacies of men, to the heritages of men. And so our glory can and must only be in the Lord. Anything that we may accomplish in regards to His kingdom is only generated through grace, faith, and mercy. And, and we are walking around with righteousness that's literally on loan from God. So any righteousness that we have is just strictly righteousness that God has, has imputed into us through faith in the Son, Jesus. And I love verse 3 right here in Romans chapter 4. He says, For, for what says the Scripture then? Adam believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What, what I love about that, folks, he's, he basically breaks it down. He says, what does the Bible say? And I like that when I'm talking to people many times, and they'll get into a discussion on something, they'll say, well, here's what I think, and this is Christians, or here's what I think, or here's what I believe, or here's what I desire, here's what I want. And I, and I always come back and say just what it says there in Romans 4.3. But folks, what does the Bible say about that? You know, I, I mentioned that recently the, the Assemblies of God in Australia brought down a, a, a proclamation that says there's, there's now another reason for uh, divorce besides adultery, which is what the Bible says, and it's for verifiable uh, spousal abuse. Now, why I say that that's bad and it shouldn't be tolerated, the Bible doesn't say that. And they also said that, uh, uh, that you know, Ministers can drink and it's all just a matter of personal preference. Folks, it's not a matter of personal preference. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so if, if what does the Bible say about these type of things? It says, so it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So you're going to love this. It says that he believed. That's that pistukos. And if you'll remember, our, our, our root for faith was pistis. And so it's the same word. And so it's the root of faith. And so it says that, that, that Abraham believed or he had faith or he was rooted in trusting God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And it, it, it being what? It was faith. And so he believed or he had faith and it was that faith that God accounted to him for righteousness. It was faith, faith alone that, that caused righteousness to come into the life of Abraham. Faith cannot become works, and works cannot be faith. Folks, I'm going to say that again. We can never allow faith to be defined by our works, but we cannot say that our works are our faith. Those things have got to work together. Works have got to come out of our life and, and be demonstration of our faith. We can't ever have one replacing the other. And I think that's what you see so many times in the body of Christ is you've got this legalism on one side that says I've got to do all these things to merit the favor of God. You have this other side that says I'm just going to believe these things but I'm never going to produce it. 
Folks, James tells us that faith without works is dead. If you look at the life of Abraham, Abraham's life, he had faith and it was accounted unto him righteousness. But what happened? You saw, the, you saw the spiritual offspring. He became the father of many nations. Folks, we're out of time today. Appreciate you joining us today for this student ministry and biblical studies. Don't forget, get tonight at, at uh, 8.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Time until 10. We're going to have the Raven Nation broadcast right here from Daytona Beach, Florida. We're going to invite you to come. Folks, have a great day. Get into God's Word, and God's Word will get into you.